Hello, and welcome to the Identity Paradox Inside the Racial Pharmacon, a podcast examining anti-racist theories and practices aimed at dismantling destructive identitarian politics and ideologies, both in the U.S. and abroad. Please note that discussions deal with very difficult subject matter, so every episode comes with a general content warning. And I'm your host, Carlos Gallego, Associate Professor of English, as well as both Distinguished Teaching Professor in Humanities here at St. Olaf College. This podcast is part of the programming brought to you by the Bolt Chair Endowment. So special thanks to the Bolt family for making this programming possible. If you enjoyed today's podcast, make sure to subscribe for future episodes. And now, the show. Hello, and welcome to the Identity Paradox. Coming to you from downtown Minneapolis, we are recording on May 8th. And yes, we are going to come uh, with uh, probably three recordings this month, at least uploaded. Uh, the last one was recorded in April, but it didn't make the April drop. So we'll be dropping three this month, uh, not to compensate, but just because we have awesome guests that have agreed to come onto the podcast and um, chat with me about specific issues. And today we'll be talking about uh, geopolitical crises, uh, refugee asylum seeking, what constitutes an acceptable refugee asylum seeker versus what constitutes a less than acceptable refugee asylum seeker, uh, what constitutes a geopolitical crisis, and more importantly, what constitutes a geopolitical crisis according to Western European nations and the United States specifically. And in order to help me with that conversation, I have a very special guest, uh, good friend of mine, uh, a great colleague who I highly admire, uh, Associate Professor of Sociology, Ibtisam Alaltiat, who uh, was after uh, giving a, uh, being voted to give a talk along with another colleague of ours, Greg Walters, uh, as a part of these lectures that are given at our college called the Melby Lectures, where faculty vote for a couple of faculty that they think are both intelligent and have something to contribute to overall discussions. Uh, Ibtisam was voted this year. And after uh, the talks that she gave, uh, once people were mingling in the audience, one colleague who I also admire in terms of her leadership on campus, uh, uh, as we were talking about Ibtisam, without Ibtisam knowing this, uh, confided in me that uh, every time that she talks to Ibtisam, she learns something new. We're talking about a senior tenured faculty member saying that every time I talk to Ibtisam, I always learn something new. She is the smartest person I know, uh, which I think when a faculty gives you unsolicited compliments of that degree, that you're the smartest person that they know, uh, I think says a lot about uh, Ibtisam's credentials and overall va- existential value as a human being. So thank you, Ibtisam, for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for this kind introduction. Uh, Really happy to be here, Carlos. I appreciate it. Is there anything I left out of your introduction that you would like to add? Where you come from, how you got to here? (laughs) I'm always troubled by questions uh, about who I am. Uh, uh, And and the trouble is is understandable because you uh, also struggle with with, with the same question. Because every time you're asked, to introduce yourself, you're asked to uh, maybe uh, conduct a confession of some sort. Uh, and uh, this confession is, is not easy. Uh, I'm always reminded of that statement in the Bible when Moses asks God, uh, who should I say send, sent me? And God responds, I am that I am, right? 
So God gives this non-answer, but it's a, a, a very good answer. Yeah. Uh, and then people like us, uh, the question of identity is not easy. So I could say about myself that I am of a Jordanian origin. I could also say that I come also from a Palestinian family uh, who was uh, 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 displaced twice, 1948 and 1967. Uh, and uh, uh, this is how my Jordanian father and my Palestinian mother uh, got to know each other. And this is how I came into existence. Uh, I could do all that. I could claim, you know, with, uh, 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 with you know, uh, every inch of uh, 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 life within me that I am uh, Palestinian, but then you're confronted with, 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 with the realization that well, what does that eventually mean? Uh, so the question of identity is not, is not an easy one. So whenever I'm asked that, uh, I give also, like, like, like Moses God, uh, an unresponsive answer. And I say, I am a contradiction waiting to be resolved. Uh, uh, Fanan has a, a, also an interesting response to this. Uh, he says, I am, um, I am one who waits. I study my surroundings. I examine them. And then uh, I give an answer. So that's another answer. So uh, I will wait to introduce myself until I study the context within which you're going to put me, and then I will claim uh, uh, an identity. How is that for an answer? I think that uh, is great uh, evidence to why people see you as one of the most intelligent people they know and why uh, I consider you such a great colleague and friend and why so many students admire you. I've heard that answer before. I am a walking contradiction waiting to be resolved uh, in our conversations. Uh, so I'm familiar with it, but I love the fact that you're... Uh, your commitment to that political ethic and that philosophical standpoint is unyielding. That's what I really like about you. It's almost like you get in as much trouble around campus as I do sometimes in terms of the things we say inside and outside the classroom. And so that kind of answer, which is one that my identity consists of so much non-identity that it's difficult for me to reconcile that in the typical kind of philosophical sense. Uh, and we both know, you know, philosophers that we could reference like Adorno and others that uh, and you mentioned Franz Fanon, who I highly recommend uh, audience uh, viewers and listeners. If you're listening, by the way, we're going to show a lot of slides today. Just make sure you uh, you can find those on the notes and links and uh, on the website, identityparadox.com, because uh, it'd be very unfortunate for you to miss some of the uh, visuals that we'll be sharing and discussing today. So, uh, but yes, that's an excellent uh, introduction and I agree with you. Uh, I am, as many people, all committed 47 listeners and no, nine listeners and 47 viewers uh, that I'm from the border. So yes, when you grow up in the border and that's been uh, in many ways theorized in terms of borderland subjectivity, the ambiguity with which you grow up, regardless of how strictly and disciplined you are in terms of the identity you are ascribed, uh, it creates a kind of, I would call it just a general existential dissonance. You don't know who you are because you don't know how, you don't know who you are until you're put in a situation to see whether or not you fit. 
And I think that some of the stuff that you are alluding to in terms of my framing of you today and your decision to this, your decision of who you are based on that situational positioning, which is extremely strategic uh, and very, very smart. And that's how I think people like you and me and others that come from similar situations of displacement survive, right? It's those that survive are those that know how to fit within a situation, navigate it and in order to keep moving, not necessarily to settle, but to navigate till you find a, a place of your own as Virginia Woolf theorized. So, all right. So um, I wanted to start today and uh, I just want to be frank and transparent with uh, viewers, listeners and uh, you, uh, Ibtisam. This is the first talk, I think, chat, whatever you want to call it, discussion, conversation that I didn't script. Yeah. The email I sent you in terms of like, yeah, this is just a general outline is as much as I scripted this because I have a lot of confidence in our ability to keep this conversation going because I think that you and I are not only intellectually invested in these types of issues because it's what we research and write about. And so that people know you're a sociologist and I'm an English professor. Uh, I'm supposed to be teaching literature and things that have nothing to do with what you do. And yet there is this uh, literary school of thought called the sociology of literature. That is a, a, a literally an approach that some people take to the study of literature and one that I have a lot of affinity for. So uh, I think that, and we've already talked about this. We share many students in terms of when we teach in race and ethnic studies and things of this nature. So uh, even though we come from very different disciplines, I have a lot of confidence in our ability to have a conversation around these issues. So let's start also, with- Also, yeah, please, please. But, but we're also promiscuous scholars. We do not adhere to the accepted borders of discipline. Oh, I love that. Is that the new promiscuous scholars? I, I've never heard that. I'm behind the times, I guess, but I, unless you made it up and I wouldn't doubt it. I think that I want, yes, please, I am that. I am for sale to any, not for sale, but I will lend myself to any discipline that I find relevant to what I am studying, researching, critiquing, et cetera. So yes, uh, the new term, uh, boys and girls for interdisciplinary scholarship is promiscuous scholars. All right, feel free to start using that. Uh, this, is what, this is what makes it to sound hip as a professor, as opposed to me. Like I wear a tie, I'm a total dork. Ibtisam comes up with cool terminology for interdisciplinarity studies as, or interdisciplinary studies as promiscuous studies. Yes, absolutely. So let's be promiscuous with geopolitical crises and what constitutes them. So there's one geopolitical crisis that is, that is at the forefront of American media right now. And that's obviously the current uh, conflict, war, crisis uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and one of the things that I, and it's interesting because it's almost like the potential critique that one might have living in a place like the United States or living in Europe of the conflict and the origins of this conflict and the kind of history behind this conflict uh, didn't gain legitimacy until the Pope came out and criticized NATO. <laughs> did you hear about that? No, I did not. Yes, the Pope came out and said that NATO is equally, if not more, responsible for the current war in the Ukraine simply because of their expansionism and the way that they've been expanding. So I just want to uh, quickly share uh, a screen that highlights that. Uh, so here is an image of uh, 
the U the NATO in Europe and the expansion that has been that has been taking place since 1949. And remember, NATO emerged. And please feel free to jump in and correct me or add anything that uh, I'm not addressing uh, that you think is important, uh, Ibtisan. But uh, NATO was created uh, post World War II as a kind of literally what it calls itself, even though it's a North Atlantic. Uh, treaty organization, the main point of NATO is to establish defense against what was at that point the Soviet Union, to combat the expansion of uh, the Soviet Union with um, uh, basically a European slash Western US uh, alliance in order to keep them in check. And what people don't understand and what's interesting about this is that this was literally a treaty on a, a, a contract that was established between NATO and literally Europe and the rest of the world, because the Soviet Union knew this was happening. And this country is infamous for breaking treaties uh, that don't no longer uh, benefit them. Uh, and you can go back to the 19th century and look at treaties around that. And some treaties even up to now uh, in the 20th century regarding the sovereignty of uh, indigenous lands in the United States and the creation of things like pipelines. So, 1949, the, the light blue are the original NATO nations. And if you notice, there's a turn right after 1949, 40 years of expansion uh, with a slightly darker blue. And that would include countries like uh, Germany, for example, uh, which obviously wasn't part of NATO post-World War II because they were, you know, ex the, the Nazi nation that was going to have to be denazified. Um and during that 40 year span, what we get in 1990 is the beginning of neoliberalism as a new political, economic, global paradigm. And so from 1990 to 2000, during that 10, during that one decade, uh, where we had Bill Clinton primarily as president, we see more further Eastern expansion. And those are the slightly darker uh, countries like Poland, for example, and Romania that you see. And in the last 20 years, since the year 2000, the darker uh nations uh, like, oh, I'm sorry, Romania would be one of the darker nations, um, represent that, uh, again, that expansion eastward further and further into uh, what Russia would consider uh, ex-Soviet satellites that are way too close to the country of Russia. So there are bases, uh, European, obviously, and U.S. bases in most of those countries, if not all of them. And uh, geopolitically speaking, this is what people say Russia is responding to in many ways. It's the Eastern expansion of NATO, NATO military and economic interests that Russia has constantly been trying to negotiate uh, as not part of the original treaty. Do you have anything to add to that episode? Um, I think one way of looking at, at, at the uh, conflict is to um, uh, look at it through the lens of, you know, uh, uh, the NATO um, uh, expanding uh, and constituting a threat to uh, Russia. But another way of looking at NATO is uh, to maybe think about it as um, how empire is manifesting itself nowadays. So um, if we uh, think of the historical manifestation of an empire, uh, uh, that was, um, uh, you know, a, a system based on dynasties and, 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 and what have you. It covered huge geographies, but it was centered on a dynasty. When it comes to um, uh, 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 the empire uh, within the context of capitalism, uh, it is those um, uh, closely knitted 
uh, nation states and what binds them together is that adherence, that commitment to the capitalist project uh, throughout the world. Uh, 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 so uh, empire against empire, uh, because uh, Russia is also uh, working to realize uh, an imperial dream. So those are two empires in conflict, in contradiction with one with 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 one another. Uh, so we can um, uh, look at it through the very micro lens that you looked at it, but we can also look at it from a theoretical perspective, one that distances itself uh, from. Uh, the political science and look at it through the lens of uh, history and social sciences and, and, and just look at how empires uh, manifest themselves in our day and time. Yes, and uh, that's an excellent point because uh, at the end of the day, what we see is essentially, and I don't know if you would agree with this, I think this is in many ways a crisis within the neoliberal empire that the Russian empire is also responding to. And what we see here are essentially two imperialistic interests coming uh, head to head in an antagonistic manner over a territory that both consider to be geopolitically uh, crucial to their own individual interests as empires. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so one of the things that we wanted to discuss today uh, is the notion of a refugee or asylum seeker, because that is part of the current narrative that's taking place uh, around uh, the war in Ukraine and how uh, Ukrainian uh citizens are being displaced, uh, how they're suffering under this Russian invasion, and essentially what some of the, what the world, and you hear this terminology a lot, uh, the world is rallying around Ukraine. And if you go on the internet, it's very difficult to avoid that because you see the Ukrainian flag everywhere. People are putting that on their Twitter handles, on Facebook, people are uh, buying t-shirts. Uh, I know you'll know nothing about this. Uh, for the record, I did not watch this, but I watched clips of it. Uh, the NFL draft that just happened, I believe this weekend or last weekend, was uh, began with an entire ceremony where the whole uh, stage was dressed as the Ukrainian flag. They had a woman come out and begin the proceedings in the you know in Ukrainian dress. They were rallying the crowd into a... So it's Really interesting. It reminds me a lot of uh, the original Gulf War, Gulf, uh, the Desert Shield slash Desert Storm with a yellow ribbon fever that happened at that time. And that's why I thought that speaking with you about this would be uh, very important because you and I both represent individuals that live in this country, but have a perspective that's not necessarily total indoctrination within the U.S. We have a perspective that could be called international in some ways because we've lived in other places or lived in localities that offer a different perspective from mainstream America. So uh, that notion of what constitutes a, a, a kind of acceptable refugee or asylum seeker versus the narratives and many of the discourses surrounding the crisis of immigration in this country is worth looking into. And that came a lot, that was a uh, very visible publicly because a lot of reporters that were Ukraine when the, when the invasion first started uh, were engaging in Freudian slips in terms of talking about the refugees and the people that live in that country. It's like we're not talking about basically they didn't say this out loud, but we're not talking about 
brown and black people here. We're talking about people with blue eyes and blonde hair who look like us. And here's a white man talking to other white people on this, in, in the studio. And so the notion is that there was more sympathy and identification with Ukrainian refugees, asylum seekers that were displaced as a consequence of this invasion because of the way they looked and their heritage. And so much of the coverage that's taking place right now in this country, uh, and here's a Wikipedia page that emerged uh, right after the invasion listing what countries are giving foreign aid to, you, to uh, Ukraine based on this current war. And one of the key terms that's used often is the world is in support supporting Ukraine. The world is coming to Ukraine's aid. And when you actually look at the map, and I can trust Wikipedia on this, there's a map of countries that are giving defense offensive equipment that are supplying military assistance to Ukraine. And then there's a differentiation between that and humanitarian aid. So this is literally a map of the countries that are the world, according to the European media and US media. This is the world supporting Ukraine in terms of the war. This is not the world. And I've discussed this with other uh, people, including my students. What you see in gray, the countries, the basically the majority of the planet that is not supporting this, and I don't know how they included uh, Greenland, but whatever, um, is what people refer to as a global South, essentially. Uh, and it is important to talk about why leaders from these parts of the country, starting with Mexico, which I've been very surprised, have come out publicly and said, we're not having suffered U.S. imperialism ourselves. We're not going to come out and support a war that's taking place in Europe that seems to be a problem among European countries that does not involve us. Uh, and this is an actual picture. And notice the change of countries that are taking in Ukrainian refugees and asylum seekers. Now you see a lot of Latin American countries, even a lot of Asian countries that are willing to take in displaced migrants from Ukraine, but are unwilling to escalate or engage in this war. Anything you wanna say about that, uh, Ibtisam? This is not surprising that that uh, that um, uh, Europe and, and, and North America um, sees itself as uh, the world uh, because they're um, uh, uh, in real, politics term, uh, the movers and the shakers of the world. Um, the rest of the world that you refer to as the global south um, um, is um, either indifferent because it's consumed with um, uh, uh, poverty, conflict, um, uh, economic crises, um, 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 consequences of um, global warming and, and what have you. Um, and uh, some do view the situation in the Ukraine as a European uh, interfamilial um, um, uh, feud and, 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 and conflict. Now, what is interesting about the coverage um, is that um, it shows again and again uh, 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 this uh, textbook example uh, of Negro power, um, whose uh, death, whose injury, uh, whose suffering is worthy of um, attention, uh, is worthy of um, uh, 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 being, you know, uh, brought into the spotlight, brought into people's daily pre preoccupations, daily conversations, and who isn't? 
um, uh, the global south that you've referred to uh, includes many people who are living in refugee camps, um, uh, struggling uh, to um, uh, with with the consequences of still COVID, uh, not having access to clean water, not having access to vaccinations, not having access to um, basic needs, not having access to basic safety and and, and security. Um, so uh, it seems that the that the the, the so-called world uh, has um, uh, um, uh, resigned to the idea that Europe is sacred, that that uh, that um, uh, suffering, death, uh, war, conflict, hunger, disease is something that is reserved to the rest of the world, to the global south. This is not something that Europeans should experience, especially since the second half of the uh, of the twentieth century. This not only normalizes war and conflict and hunger and suffering in, in the global south, it dehumanizes as well. It creates this, this you know, hierarchy between who's human, who's worthy of, you know, living in safety and prosperity and free of uh, death and um, devastation and war and hunger, and who isn't. Uh, uh, so um, um, uh, 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 this is what 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 the um, uh, uh, coverage is is, is doing. Um, the situation in in Palestine, um, the situation in Yemen, the situation in Afghanistan, uh, the situation in uh, uh, different countries in Africa, different countries in um, uh, South America, um, uh, um, uh, it, it hasn't changed a bit. That there was a const there is this constant story uh, of 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 suffering and devastation uh, that nobody pays attention to. And there was that racist moment on BBC that I watched, uh, the one that you referred to about, you know, those are um, uh, um, white kids with blue eyes and blonde hair that are being, you know, displaced and um, uh, terrified. Uh, the BBC um, uh, anchor did not correct the speaker, uh, did not reflect, did not comment, uh, which means that there is um, uh, an implicit uh, code uh, that this should not be happening in Europe. This should not be happening to Europeans. This is something that the world has reserved uh, to everybody else who's not European. That's the racist dimension of this whole thing. I think that's an excellent point. And I think just to put it in context, these are first world slash developed nations responding to what they consider to be a first world developed nation getting invaded by a non first world developed nation that who has a lot of clout, a lot of influence in the global south, because Russia is known to engage in uh shall we say, relationships with a lot of nations that the U.S. literally dismisses, marginalizes, or demonizes as being uh, anti-democratic or un un undemocratic um, and engage in a lot of regime change and things of this nature. So I think you bring up some excellent points to some of the case studies that you just brought up, including Yemen, Afghanistan, Palestine are some of the ones that I do want to investigate because I think there's a great disparity in terms of how it's covered in the United States and in Europe and the way that people talk about it. And or, or more importantly, the silence around uh, those types of ongoing crises that in many ways are equally, if not much more uh devastating morally and existentially as if you are sympathetic to people who are suffering crises and yet are not necessarily, are not even mentioned uh, in mainstream American media. But one of the key points, and this is something that I've been struggling with lately because I feel like I'm, like I'm, when I'm speaking, I feel like I sound like an old Republican because uh, there are instances where I'm against the current investment of US tax dollars into Ukraine to the point of giving the people of Ukraine stimulus checks, literally money for them to have in their bank accounts. While some of the issues that you brought up, the lack of 
addressing basic human needs in other parts of the in other parts of the world are equally present in this country. There are lots of people that are suffering economic and or uh, as you call it issues regarding healthcare, which speaks to the necro power, necro real, meaning death. Uh, that you that you ascribe, I think, very uh, astutely to the geopolitical situation happening in this country. Also, we are in many ways uh, engaging in a kind of quiet class warfare with the working class that we that many politicians see as emerging in terms of power. So I think it's interesting just to share this uh, this once uh, uh, White House memo that basically talks about the billions of dollars that have been invested already into the uh, Ukraine-Russia uh, war uh, during Biden's uh, presidency and what this new 800, so they've already added like 2 billion since the start of the war and they're adding more. And if you notice, most of this are weapons. Well, that benefits the weapons industrial complex. That benefits corporations like Lockheed Martin. That benefits corporations like Raytheon. And there's no secret. I think that today in Meet the Press, the CEO of a, uh, Lockheed Martin, I think, or yeah, I think Lockheed Martin is going to be a speaker. So now we have mainstream media promoting the very CEOs that represent the, uh, the military industrial complex who are making record profits off of this military aid that's being given to the Ukraine. So it almost seems like we are at the same time that we're mourning the uh, death and destruction that's taking place. We're also uh, not only allowing that to continue, but we are escalating the level of suffering that's taking place in the same area of the world. Um, anything to say to that? Uh, well, um, 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 as, as, as good students of um, critical race theory, we um, uh, know that um, um, uh, war, um, incarceration, uh, border control, um, refugee camps, uh, reservations are profitable experiences for um, uh, the ruling classes. Uh, so um, uh, uh, there is that um, connection uh, that is always forgotten between capitalism uh, uh, and um, uh, racial differentiation, racial segmentation of uh, people. Uh, so those uh, particular uh, techniques of um, uh, um, uh, um, 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 uh, segmenting, classifying people into groups, uh, and um, um, uh, uh, those practices of incarceration, holding people at the border, uh, uh, but also exercising direct intervention, uh, are not uh, something that is extraterrestrial to capitalism. They're inherent within the program of capitalism. So Marx was reductionist when he analyzed capitalism in the sense uh, that he only looked at the uh, uh, economic dimensions of capitalism, that he looked at class uh, in particular in capitalism. It's his concept, his, his analysis, his framework carries this potential to understanding uh, uh, the many faces of capitalism, the many evils of, of, of capitalism and, and war um, and incarceration and, and uh, border control. Uh, nation states are all very much connected, tied to the project of capitalism. Capitalism cannot exist without, you know, the world divided into uh, nation states where uh, capital is concentrated at the core and 
uh, human labor uh, is concentrated in the periphery. It, capitalism cannot uh, exist within a country without you know, that class disparity, but that class disparity that has a racial dimension uh, that continues to uh, uh, generate a group of people that uh, 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 should um, uh, exist only at the disposal of those uh, who can um, uh, benefit from uh, 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 their exploitation. Um, uh, so all of these um, uh, uh, phenomena are uh, very much connected. As, as you can see, um, I am not much of an empiricist. Um, uh, uh, I always take uh, the uh, empirical experiences as, as, as a moment to theorize, because this is what uh, critical theories is, is, is all about. And I hear your students uh, uh, talk about critical theory a lot in my class, and they bring it from uh, your class. Um, uh, so uh, uh, there is a significance uh, to uh, empirical data, in, empirical uh, anecdotes, empirical examples, but we need to always connect those two uh, uh, for the proper theorizing. So we do, where do we go from there? So uh, uh, one of the things that I always insist on is when we do this exercise of theorizing, we transcend politics because uh, liberation is not politics. Politics is politics. Politics is acting within the means of um, uh, the possible. Uh, when you think of emancipation, when you think of true liberation, you have to think beyond politics. You cannot think uh, uh, with politics or through politics. You have to transcend politics. You have to go into the realm of the impossible or the unattainable uh, within uh, the current means. And that's the only uh, 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 true theorizing uh, that is essentially critical and that does not you know, um, engage in a ceasefire or a truce with status quo. Yeah, no, that's, that's excellent points. And just to add to that, basically it, what you're saying is that the political economy of capitalism is much more multidimensional than just a simple issue of class. And it has many ramifications, which include things like uh, the implementation of racism, the implementation of gender disparities, implementation of all these other things that seem periphery, but at the end of the day are connected to the interest of capitalism, uh, nation states, and the general just political economy of capitalism, whether it's global or whether it's much more local. Uh, is that a fair assessment? It is. It, it is. And in this sense, it, one has uh, um, uh, to also understand that it's not simply uh, nation states that uh, really um, uh, allow us to understand what's happening in the world. It's those connections that we need to see between the refugee camp, uh, the favela, uh, the asylum seeker, uh, the reservation, uh, the slums, the ghettos. Um, uh, all of these are uh, sites uh, uh, that only have um, uh, different proper names, uh, but the lived experience, and you uh, you have that experience, you 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 have that border uh, experience. Uh, the lived experience um, uh, is, is 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 identical. The reason why I'm thinking about this, I was. Uh, recently revisiting the uh, uh, text by Edward Said, Reflections on um, uh, Exile. Um, and um, uh, please let me know or alert me if I'm taking too much time. No, um, please. Because this is eventually your show and you have... Um, oh, not today. <laughs> so uh, in, in, in his exile, he passes 
uh, only superficially on the situation of the refugee. And he recognizes the refugee as a form of uh, uh, exile. And, uh, and, and part of that troubled me, troubled me to the core. And I've decided eventually that Edward Said in that particular text knew exile, but he never knew what it means to be a refugee. So I started mm. asking myself, what is a refugee? And how can we define a refugee? Um, and uh, 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 part of the lessons that I've been learning from uh, the entire uh, experiment with decolonization, that we have to uh, uh, go somewhere else and, and build that definition from you know, the roots up. Uh, and I uh, 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 remember this particular story uh, uh, told by my mother on several occasions. Uh, in which uh, she spoke of her father and her father, uh, they lived in a Jenin refugee camp between 1948 until 1967. And my grandfather would get sick and uh, um, uh, he would get sick to the extent that a, a, an ambulance has to uh, come and take him from the refugee camp to a hospital in Jerusalem. I can't forget uh, how many times my mom repeated this story, insisting all the time that the name of the hospital was never relevant. Where, where did he go? Uh, she said nobody uh, could afford the uh, bus trip from uh, the refugee camp in Jenin to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was so far away, and Jerusalem from Jenin was a 25, a 20 minute drive. Uh, uh, so nobody could afford this trip. Uh, and uh, there were no phones, no means of communication. They just wait, wait for a response, either dead or alive. And um, uh, she describes um, uh, that the many times that he uh, came back, at one point he did not, uh, the, the many times that he came back, he came back, he, he would come back always with a bag of apples. Uh, and what was unique about his apples was, was, was that his apples were different in color, uh, and they were different in age. Uh, and when she asked her mom why the apples were different in color and different in age, uh, she told her that those were apples given to her father by other people who came to visit the, the, their sick, but uh, uh, their sick and had, you know, brought apples and treats with them. And they gave them to my grandfather and my grandfather saved them for his children because otherwise in the refugee camp, Nobody buys apples, nobody sells apples. So how do you theorize from there? This is not an experience of exile. This is not an experience of uh, an immigrant. There is something in that particular story. Uh, there is something in that particular form of, uh, of, 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 of existence that is fundamental, that shocks you at the core, uh, that human beings have to exist in, 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 uh, under these conditions, uh, even as we live and speak right here, right now. Uh, and yet the life goes on and there's something wrong, something fundamentally troubling uh, about the world. Uh, and it cannot be cured with, 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 with politics. It, it cannot be cured with, with politics. I always say that the problem with the Palestinians is not you know, uh, that of unrealized nationhood. The problem with Palestine is nationalism. It's, it's, the, very, uh, it's the very notion of a, of a, of a, of a nation state. Uh, sorry for the long story, but no, no. 
It's an excellent segue, actually, because I think part of it, well, first of all, I just want to say that I think what you're calling attention to by connecting things like refugee camps to favelas and all this other thing is basically the idea that there's, and Jacques Lacan, the famous uh, psychoanalyst, French psychoanalyst said this, that the whole world has now become a kind of concentration camp, that you can find sectors of what that means in different parts of the world, but you have literal geographic, specific geographic locations that are essentially built upon the model of the camp. And and you brought up the favelas in, in, in Brazil, and I've been to Rio de Janeiro, so I've, I've seen them personally. I've actually, I went to a party up in one of them. Um, we have favelas in Mexico, too. They just don't, they're not called that, and people don't talk about it that way. But the entire, almost all of Latin America has homes and, you know, impromptu neighborhoods that are constructed on hills uh, by people have that cannot afford to buy a home. So they build their own homes and they build their own plumbing systems. And, uh having grown up half the time in Mexico, I grew up at those kind of favelas. So you're absolutely right in connecting the conditions, but to go back to Marx, the material conditions of existence behind what constitutes a refugee versus someone who is in exile. And they can be extremely very, very different. And one thing that I noticed that you did not bring up is the idea of a camp uh, looking or in any way, shape or form, mimicking something that could uh, be called a castle. So this is how Ukrainian refugees are being treated in France. Uh, they get to stay at French castles uh, that uh, you know, are ascribed to specific fairy tales. Uh, and there's a whole story here about uh, their location and the standing buildings and rustic distance and the fact that they're basically tourists come from around the world to be there, uh, but there's nowhere to be seen in this case because uh, essentially the fairy tale castle uh, has reprieved specific refugees uh, from a specific nation that look a specific way uh, into uh, asylum seeking in a place that I would not describe or would not. Def I mean, you depends what's going on behind the walls of the castle, but the fact that it's framed as a fairy tale, I think, highlights the fact that different refugees slash different asylum seekers are treated differently. And right now, Europe wants nothing to do with African. Uh, asylum seekers slash refugees that in many ways are trying to escape the condi material conditions of existence that are a consequence of European colonialism in many instances or neoliberal imperialism. They're trying to escape those material conditions of existence that are dire. And we'll show some examples of what that means in places like Ethiopia and places like Yemen and places like Palestine that Ibtissam brought up, or even in places like Mexico. Um, People are not coming to Europe or coming to the United States because they are simply looking for some kind of social mobility and to realize an American dream. That's one of the narratives we impose on immigrants because the United States government does not want to talk about things like how climate change uh, that is a result of American corporations going overseas has created climate disasters in other countries that people now need to flee because they can't literally live in those places anymore. And those are some of the immigrants that you find at the border uh, as a, and that are victims of displacement. They're not coming here out of choice or coming here out of there's no other place to go because where I used to live has become unlivable. So I wanted to show this uh just this brief story that people can look up uh, on, on the website uh, to contrast what you're talking about in terms of the, the kind of the necropolitical, necropower around 
putting people in camps or forcing them to stay in detention centers while they await asylum seeking versus what some European nations, in this case, France, are doing in relationship to Ukrainian refugees. And again, I want to highlight that map by Wikipedia. It's not just France. There are, there, there are a lot of South American countries, a lot of Asian countries that are not aiding Ukraine in terms of military assistance are still accepting Ukrainian refugees. I read this one story. I forget what nation in Europe is doing it. I think it might be Britain and a wouldn't doubt it, but they are exporting their Ukrainian refugees to Rwanda, which I think is just cruel. Uh, but that is the neoliberal model. We'll take credit for taking all these refugees and then we'll pay Rwanda to take care of them for us. So it's a very interesting move that uh, some European countries are taking because uh, at the end of the day, they don't want to necessarily have to deal with the actual bodies that any migrant displacement tales. Uh, care to speak to the castle fairy tale story at all? What, um, uh, uh, there was also um, uh, stories about European governments um, uh, subsidizing the economies of many um, um, uh, uh, um, other countries of the global south uh, in order to keep Syrian refugees uh, within you know, um, uh, the global south and not just have them come in ways uh, uh, knocking on Europe's door. Um, there's within the context of all this, um, uh, uh, there's also uh, this exercise of um, redefining evil um, uh, and redefining the ultimate example of evil. Um, um, uh, Amy Césaire uh, talks about, you know, how uh, uh, the Holocaust uh, uh, was treated as this, you know, uh, unique, exceptional, ultimate example of evil. And there is a, a lot of danger uh, 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 to cast the Holocaust as this ultimate, unique, exceptional uh, example of evil. Um, um, some of the uh, uh, important insights were highlighted by Hannah Arndt in her banality of, of, of evil. Um, but what, what this does, um, especially in the case of um, uh, the Ukraine uh, turning, you know, Russia into this, you know, uh, new global evil, global example of uh, evil and, and that exceptional form of, of evil, is that you turn the never again into the permanent Nakba, the permanent catastrophe for everybody else, uh, that um, only uh, exceptional cases of evil are worthy of attention, of support, of, um, uh, uh, of, 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 of even uh, emotional reaction. So the rest of the world can go to hell. Uh, we would never care. Uh, so uh, uh, it is the, 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 the same act to declare uh, wholeheartedly that certain events should never happen again. Uh, yet at the same time, uh, it's a permission uh, to um, uh, create permanent nakdas throughout the world uh, for everybody else who does not qualify for that particular standard that people would set uh, for uh, absolutely uh, uh, um, um, uh, for those standards. Yeah, and I just, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, for the screen to interrupt you, but I was just trying to offer uh, one empirical case study of what you're describing, which is the current ethnic cleansing and humanitarian crisis that's taking place in Ethiopia, Ethiopia specifically in Western Tigray, that the United States 
mainstream media is not talking about it all as a humanitarian crisis and the need for humanitarian aid. The need to uh, stop uh, this uh, ethnic cleansing that's taking place and the need to provide some kind of financial assistance and for the world to rally around the displaced migrants coming out of Ethiopia and accept them. That kind of narrative is not taking place. And yet, I think there's a reason why we don't want to talk about uh, places like Ethiopia and the fact that there is essentially a, a real ethnic cleansing, which alludes back to the never again, which alludes back to the Holocaust, which alludes back to the fact that it is still happening in various places around the world. But these places don't count as equally human as other places. Some nations are less human than others in this case. And I think that's one of the points you're making. And if you look in specifically to the Tigray, uh, Ethiopia uh, uh, war that's happening, that ethnic cleansing, we get a lot of coverage right now around what's happening with citizens in Ukraine and hospitals and shelters and things of this nature. Same thing is happening in Ethiopia. And there's no discussion about the food shortage. There's no discussing about hospitals being bombed. There's no discussion about that humanitarian crisis. And I think it's interesting because at the end of the day, if I find this correctly, uh, and I just wanted to show this picture, uh, forgive me for the content warning, but this is the kind of suffering that's taking place right now in Tigray that uh, Western media is not uh, paying attention to. These are the scenes that are coming out of Ethiopia. We get a lot of these kinds of pictures coming out of Ukraine, but we don't hear or see this coming out of Ethiopia. And I think one of the reasons why is because at the end of the day, there are multinational corporate, specifically in this case, everybody's favorite coffee shop, Starbucks, that has specific political and economic interest in maintaining the current powers that be in Ethiopia in power because they profit off of them. Uh, Starbucks was one of the main corporations to stop uh, Ethiopian coffee from establishing its own intellectual property. And they established what they call the National Coffee Association that represents coffee roasters of the United States that objected to Ethiopia's application to trademark specific types of coffee. So the reason why I would speculate, I don't know about you, uh, but I assume that you're similar in this regard, is that there's a strong connection, again, going back to capitalism, between the political and the economy slash political economy of these nation states or in hemispheric blocks or multinationals that control the narratives around different parts of the world and why some places constitute a humanitarian crisis that everybody should rally around and people need to contribute money to versus what countries do not constitute a, uh, a humanitarian political crisis. And here's another one, right? The, the United States is still helping fund a war in Yemen, and yet uh, what we don't hear about, and I just want to scroll all the way to the bottom, U.S. involvement, and specifically, well, I'll find it later if I need to come back to it, but uh, the point is that the United States is helping fund this war. The United States has claimed to not be funding this war, and yes, it keeps getting worse, and there is essentially a crisis that uh, and here's a quote, Yemen is still one of the largest humanitarian crises in the world as a consequence of uh, 
it's conflict, I guess. I don't know what they're calling it because it is a war. And Saudi Arabia is uh, involved in that, supposedly trying to eradicate uh, the remnants of Al-Qaeda and ISIS that might still be in Yemen. And so we're helping fund that war indirectly and it's created a humanitarian crisis in Yemen where people, children specifically, are starving to death. And again, there's no U.S. coverage about that simply because we are equally complicit in what Saudi Arabia is doing to that country. Perhaps you probably know more about this episode, but just want to get some context. Um, it's, 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 it's not about knowing more about this. What you've covered is, uh, is, is, is actually um, uh, um, the uh, facts about the situation in, in Yemen. But what is interesting about those um, particular cases, uh, Yemen, Afghanistan, uh, uh, you can also maybe think of the Ukraine in the same sense. This is an exercise of war for the sake of war, uh, because um, war is very much um, uh, uh, not the side effect, not extraterrestrial to capitalism. It's the very heart of capitalism. This is how capitalism uh, works. Uh, but this war for war's sake uh, uh, is uh, profitable. Uh, there is a lot of profit to be generated from uh, war. Uh, the war in Iraq, the war in uh, Yemen, uh, the war in uh, Afghanistan. Uh, nothing has been achieved uh, in those three particular situations. Uh, nobody is being held accountable for um, uh, achieving anything of the uh, reasons why uh, the United States went to war uh, in Afghanistan and, and occupied the country for uh, 20 years um, and uh, left abruptly, uh, jeopardizing people's um, uh, livelihood and people's uh, safety and, and handing the, the, the country back to what was declared to begin with uh, the enemy. Uh, uh, so um, uh, there is that phenomenon of war uh, for war's sake because war is profitable. Um, this is how the empire works. It works uh, through war machine and war has will continue to be part of this uh, system until it's abolished. And I think you bring up a great point well, that goes uh, that echoes one of the points you started off uh, the, our conversation with, which is this concept of liberation, right? We went to Afghanistan and we didn't occupy, we didn't invade and occupy, we liberated. And this story highlights the consequences of our liberation. This is the legacy we left behind in Afghanistan. As you said, the Taliban was the number one enemy that justified our quote unquote, don't literal invasion in the first place and occupation. We left, Taliban's now in control. We took the money that we were supposed to leave there for humanitarian aid with us. And at the end of the day, women are being forced into prostitution and families are being forced to sell their uh, children just to survive at this point. So we're going back to the idea of basic needs. So I just wanted to show this story because it very much speaks uh, to yet another example of what you're talking about regarding uh, humanitarian crisis and what constitutes uh, a, re a human being that is uh, worthy of liberation in the traditional sense of the word and being put into a castle as part of the refugee experience versus people that are literally left behind by imperialism, by empire. Empire goes, it extracts what it needs in terms of natural resources or people, which are a natural resource in that case, and then they leave. And the legacies that they usually leave are not ones of improvement or ones of devastation. So. I wanted to contrast the fact that uh, I just want to bring this screen up because this is what I got from the Washington Post. And you can see what I was looking for versus what I got. And I want to share this with the audience because I think it's very telling the U.S. propaganda machine. Um, I first came across a story 
of uh, women in Afghanistan having to sell their children and prostituting themselves in the Washington Post. So I went back and I tried to look for it. And you can see that my, my search is pretty specific. Afghanistan selling children. I tried Afghanistan prostitution and everything. And this is what I got. And I think it's wonderful because it speaks to the fact that if you want to find out about find out about the fact that people in Afghanistan are selling their children to survive, because this is a legacy of U.S. imperialism, uh, what you're going to get is Jill Biden pays a surprise visit. Surprise, her and Justin Trudeau are in Ukraine for a special. They remind me of like uh, celebrities during Vietnam that were surprised the troops by just showing up in order to boost morale. And here's a lovely picture of uh, one blonde woman giving flowers to another blonde woman as a way of welcoming them, or at least offering some moral support, whereas we never see, and we will never see Joe Biden visiting Yemen, doing the same thing, visiting Ethiopia, doing the same thing, going to Palestine, doing the same thing, going to the border, doing the same thing. You'll never see any of that. What you will see is that lovely picture and that surprise visit, which again, I think in many ways speaks to the fact that uh, not all people who are displaced do to war uh, or other kinds of crises uh, are treated equally uh, by uh, not only the nation state, but what Ibtissam uh, justifiably called empire. So I want to transition to you now, uh, Ibtissam, so you can talk about what we're seeing here, because this just happened. And I am sure that you're more than familiar with all these stories. And perhaps, and I got a couple of slides with maps that tell the brief history of what happened in Palestine, but I want to start with the contemporary situation that, again, is not being covered by United States mainstream media, because I haven't seen anything dealing with this. What just happened in Palestine with a high court ruling? Well, um, there was a, a, a recent, um, but by recent, we need to insist that it's one of many. Uh, so it's not, it's nothing new. Uh, uh, um, it's a place near um, Hebron. Um, it's a, a group of um, villages inhabited by 1,000 people. Uh, and um, uh, the um, uh, higher court decided uh, that those exist uh, within an area uh, that is better suited for military training for the Israeli Defense Forces. So um, they have um, um, uh, seized over the um, uh, villages, demolished the villages, um, uh, and displaced the uh, 1,000 men, women, elderly children, inhabitants of uh, those villages. Um, uh, 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 what is uh, interesting about this particular case is that uh, Jewish settlers who also existed around this particular area uh, were not asked to leave, were not, you know, uh, uh, displaced, uh, which um, uh, there was an, an interesting article in Haaretz, uh, uh, the prominent uh, Israeli newspaper, uh, that described this rightly as uh, turning uh, occupation into apartheid. Uh, this is an exercise of apartheid, a very good example uh, of, 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 of which, because uh, the uh, um, demolishing of uh, houses of villages was something that was um, exercised um, um, uh, long before even the um, establishment of the, the the recent establishment of the state of Israel. Uh, my family comes from a village named Zerain, um, yeah, and um, uh, this uh, particular village was captured in uh, uh, late 1947 by uh, Israeli by 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 Zionist militia. 
uh, and um, uh, the um, inhabitants of the village were, you know, displaced. And this is how my family came to live in a, in a, uh, in a refugee camp. Uh, my mom was uh, four years at the time. My mom died in, in Jordan last year. Uh, never um, set a foot back um, in Palestine, never visited, um, uh, could not uh, 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 do even that. Uh, the village itself was demolished the same year it was captured. And what remains of, of that particular place uh, are ruins. Um, stories that I was told um, uh, by my grandmother that when they left, they they thought that they were leaving for a couple of days. So uh, they gathered everything they had and, and they placed all their belongings, which wasn't, uh, you know, um, 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 uh, anything of uh, what we would consider of value nowadays. Uh, and they placed everything in, in, in the villages well. Um, and uh, they never came back. It wasn't a couple of days. It was uh, a lifetime uh, uh, sentence to um, uh, uh, sentence to a, a life as a, as a refugee, uh, a stranger in a in a foreign country, in a uh, in a in a different place, away far away from home. Permanent displacement. Absolutely. It's so it's part of like the current U.S. immigration policy, where they just assume if you speak Spanish, you come from a certain country, they drop you off in that country, even if you're not from that country, and you're just expected to somehow survive. So, just to add a little bit more to your point, here is a firsthand account from a young man who actually lives in that region, trying to explain to the world, because again, this is not shared on U.S. mainstream media, discussing uh, what is taking place uh, in uh, in Palestine at this point. I watched and filmed with pain the occupation destroying my community. My family and other families here in Masafir Yatta have been lived here for centuries. The, the declaration of the firing zone is a lie is a brutal tool to evacuate us from our land. We started the Save Masafir Yatta campaign to save our homes. We're sharing and writing and posting our stories in order to make to, to get the international community attention and make them put pressure on the Israeli authorities. So I wanted to share that because I feel that one, it humanizes what's happening. It gives a brief background of what's happening. Uh, but more importantly, at the end of the day, it provides a certain kind of coverage uh, that is not being provided by mainstream media. We don't hear about this. Uh, anything that you want to add to what we just heard and saw? episode? This is what um, the indifference of, um, not indifference, there is a lot of difference here. And, and this difference is bias and this difference is neglect. Uh, this difference is silence. Um, uh, and um, um, uh, 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 there, there, there in it is um, um, a dehumanization. Uh, that there is a, 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 what it says to the world, that there is a segment of humanity uh, faded uh, for uh, this form of existence, um, that it's not worthy of um, uh, uh, our passion or our compassion, um, um, uh, or even um, uh, uh, a feel of um, uh, sorrow, a any expenditure of emotion, uh, a segment of, of, of humanity is 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 as um, unworthy of. Uh, of this whole thing. Uh, uh, this is again goes to um, uh, uh, the dehumanization, but uh, the uh, uh, successful effort uh, to um, 
other the Palestinians uh, to erase them from uh, um, 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 from the face of the earth. Um, if um, um, uh, there is a genocide, this exercise of genocide has been exercised and practiced systematically um, uh, since 1947 uh, uh, onwards. Uh, and there are many ways that you could erase people from 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 existence. You, you don't. Would you consider to... this one way? What you're seeing on the screen right now? Absolutely, absolutely. Can you just speak to this, please? Because I don't even feel like I have the standing to speak to such an ugly display of imperialistic, Zionistic takeover of uh, basically evicting people from land that they have inhabited for centuries. Uh, the, 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 the problem um, is even um, uh, uh, older than um, the declaration in 2019. And in 2019, when the uh, Israeli Supreme Court decided that Israel is the nation state for uh, Jews. Uh, so it, it has made uh, a clear decision that this nation state uh, has a, a particular uh, 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 ethnic, um, uh, um, um, it's the homeland for a particular ethnic group, uh, which means that nobody else uh, can be included in the definition of this nation. Like nobody else can be part of this uh, uh, nation uh, state. Um, uh, uh, but uh, this 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 whole thing um, uh, is uh, problematic because in the United States this there is this um, 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 uh, understanding that the conflict is centuries old like Arabs and Jews were fighting you know since the beginning of time. Uh, uh, which is which is not true. This is a, a, a modern conflict, a modern problem uh, that began with the Zionist movement. The Zionist movement that emerged in Europe had colonial ambitions. Uh, this is not me saying that. This was documented by scholars who uh, uh, were uh, 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 Jews themselves. Um, and um, uh, there is uh, the second misunderstanding that that Israel is the only place uh, where Jews can be safe and protected from uh, uh, anti-Semitism. Um, uh, 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 there's a lot of things that can be said about the logic like this, like, like Europe cannot be reformed, that Jews have to be you know, uh, taken out of Europe and the rest of the world and concentrated in, 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 in a place uh, that for uh, the Jews to feel safe, uh, the safety, the livelihood, the existence of another nation has to be, you know, put in jeopardy, uh, and this is what is uh, 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 what is happening. Um, there are many people who are um, uh, still optimistic out there and still speak of the two-state solution, and others would uh, speak of uh, one-state solution. Edward Said was a was a the Palestinian uh, scholar was at one point hopeful uh, that a one binational state. Uh, uh, could be a possibility uh, uh, to resolve this uh, uh, particular conflict. Um, the prospects for a two-nation uh, state, as, as, as you can see, um, uh, is, um, uh, and you will show from your uh, uh, other maps, um, are not viable anymore. Um, and um, uh, 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 although this is a, a painful realization um, uh, to um, uh, uh, come to terms with, uh, but it is perhaps a moment 
uh, to really uh, rethink the Palestinian uh, uh, occupies this peculiar position in the world today uh, to show us what liberation looks like and what liberation beyond um, uh, beyond nationalism looks like. Uh, the Jew at one point after the Holocaust in particular occupied that position uh, just to teach the world what, what, what humanity looks like. Uh, and uh, if Israel is, is the lesson learned from the Holocaust, then we're in deep trouble. Uh, for the Palestinians, if the, the emancipation of the Palestinian is yet another nation state where we can just um, lay borders and do border control and declare other people trespassers, uh, then we're, we remain in that deep trouble. Uh, we're in a significant historical moment, and if there is hope, the, that hope lies within you know, the Palestinian occupying that particular position, showing us um, the way to true emancipation, to true freedom. Uh, and the Palestinian is not, you know, um, alone in that. It's the Palestinian, it's the Black, it's the indigenous, uh, the Aboriginal, the in inhabitants and the residents of the favela, of the asylum, um, uh, uh, of the slums, of the of ghettos, of uh, all the places um, which are declared, uh, you know, places where uh, um, uh, um, uh, wasted humanity um, is fated to reside. So in many ways, I think what you're describing is, as we see this map of exactly what you've been this, uh, explaining to us, is that there's been an increasing uh, nationalization of these territories where these people used to just coexist naturally outside of that kind of politicization. Then now, be once it became politicized, it led to essentially this kind of what I would call a segregation state uh, that essentially is built upon a settler colonial model that is now engaging in imperialism by expanding that settler colonial model through evictions and through these bogus rulings that date back to 1980 when in reality you this conflict dates back to the 60s and the people that inhabited these these families that are being evicted have lived there long before israel even existed as a nation so it's bogus international law in the first place but on the other hand i think you're absolutely right that and many people want to make this argument that you cannot critique israel because if you do then you're an anti-semite uh and i think it was a harvard crimson uh their, i forget what their newspaper student newspaper is called but they've gone they've come under a lot of a. Uh, attack because they came out with an op-ed saying that to uh, boycott, uh, disinvest, and basically to engage in this kind of critique of Israel around, uh, is it is it BDS, uh, the initials? Uh, yeah. That that is not anti-Semitic, that to criticize Israel as a nation state is not to engage in anti-Semitism, and that that narrative, that form of excusing what's happening right now in places like Palestine is part of the ideological apparatus that the nation itself uses as a way of silencing critics uh, on the as you very uh, succinctly put it, the dehumanization of the other, which in this case is the Palestinian. So suddenly it's an ironic reversal of what, what the Jew represented post 1940s as the embodiment of like, never again will we dehumanize people. Suddenly you just start substituting other people. And in this case, it's people who identify as Jewish othering and dehumanizing people that literally welcome them into those territories in the first place. Right, right. And, and, and boycotting is, is not new in history. Martin Luther King uh, promoted boycotting. Uh, 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 the irony, he used the example of Coca-Cola and Wonder Bread. Uh, 
and uh, um, uh, uh, the example of South Africa. Uh, but there is also a legitimate criticism out there of the uh, BDS movement. Uh, what this um, boycotting uh, does is that it offers a market solution uh, and it, it still falls short of true liberation. It, this is a market solution for a, a non-market problem. So capitalism, again, is offering itself as a, as, as a cure for what uh, it has always been, uh, you know, the, the, the medium uh, uh, of. Uh, um, uh, so this is, you know, turning um, the evictions, turning, you know, the life in uh, exile, turning the life in a refugee camp, turning death, turning disability, uh, turning the horror of, uh, you know, uh, uh, being divided by a wall, turning the checkpoints, turning all that into a financial transaction. Uh, and um, uh, uh, that financial transaction is is uh, is not thinking uh, um, uh, in the right direction. Uh, although I acknowledge the uh, effectiveness of this method uh, in the cases um, uh, cited earlier, it'd be great if it was boycott capitalism, not just boycott a specific nation and its products, right, and its yeah. services, like you know, absolutely spyware. Absolutely. Who's not going to buy spyware from Israel right now? They have the best spyware in the world. Uh, so just to, uh, I just want to bring up this uh, slide again, just to confirm one of your points, which I think is excellent and speaks to the fact that when you look at the case studies or empirical situations, you want to theorize, you want to use that material situation and the reality of it and extract some kind of theory in, as a way of not only thinking about that situation, but trying to think beyond it or outside of the current framing under which it's placed. So if I understood you correctly, what we see in this map is a basically uh, things that we already agreed upon, settler colonial imperialist model that involves nation state solutions, and it continues a kind of nation state problem. And what you're promoting is that the solution to the problem that this map represents should not be resolved in terms of the current status quo rhetoric and ideological options available around the concept of a nation state. If you feel if there's a resolution to what's happening right now in Palestine and Israel and that conflict, we should imagine something beyond the nation state. We should imagine something beyond the current status quo, because if we insert any version of the status quo into that situation, it will only reproduce the same problems we're witnessing right now, just in the future. And it may look differently, but in its essence, it will be a version of the same thing. Right, right, right. And, and, and this brings us back to the point that we've uh, discussed earlier about the refugee camp, that um, that the Palestinian, that the the, the, the Black person, the ghettos, the favelas, the slums um, uh, throughout the world uh, um, are sites that are comparable. They're only different in terms of their proper names. Um, and uh, if, if Marx once um, uh, uh, invited the workers of the world to unite, <clears throat> and um, his call has failed because uh, capitalism prevailed and communism never did, uh, perhaps. Uh, it was because his his call was not uh, uh, um, was not uh, comprehensive enough, was not thorough enough that he did not really understood understand the world beyond uh, his experience, his immediate experience and no experience in Europe. Um, 
So um, it is only when we understand that you and I are different, but only uh, in, in, in proper names, but uh, uh, in, in real terms, uh, you and I are not that different, uh, that the uh, uh, larger structures that um, um, produce my existence um, are not that different from the larger structures that produce yours. And, and, and just to speak to that, uh, just to begin to wrap this up and to speak to your point, something a little bit more local is happening right now at the U.S.-Mexico border. And just one thing that I want to begin talking about is you highlighted the fact, you know, the wall, families being separated, everything that was discussed under Trump. I want to just inform the audience for those people that don't know that many of the same policies that Trump implemented along U.S.-Mexican border immigration stuff is still happening under Biden. So it doesn't matter now that Democrats are in power, they're going to treat asylum seekers and immigrants and refugees better. We're seeing, well, you already saw plenty of cases where the Biden administration is escalating uh, situations uh, that are humanitarian crisis, if not disasters in places like Yemen and Ethiopia, and I would argue at the U.S.-Mexico border. And again, it's not getting the same kind of outrage uh, from people that ascribe or identify as liberals, simply because it's not being covered the way the current Ukraine-Russia war conflict, whatever, is being covered. So I just want to let people know that Mexicans have been invited to come into this country as laborers for decades, for close to a century at this point. And it started with the Bracero program, uh, which was basically a way of bringing cheap labor in order to help the agri agribusiness in the United States during World War II. And that essentially it became an agreement uh, in 1951 that ended in 1964. And yet there's a study that the Bracero program did not have an, and many of the people argued that the reason why it needed to get eradicated, the reason why we needed to get rid of it is because it was taking jobs away from Americans. And a recent study shows that it never did and it never has. This, this, this lie that Mexican immigrants take, well, that Mexican immigrants take over American jobs has been continually disproven as false. Uh, so I want to highlight the fact that that continues to be the case right now. Mexican laborers are essentially undocumented laborers, undocumented immigrants constitute basically half of the workforce that works around agriculture, which is where your food comes from, which is where uh, a, a lot of your fresh produce comes from. Uh, to go back to your grandfather's story, that's where the apples comes from. Someone has to pick these things in the United States. It is Mexican workers. And yet this is how we treat them, right? This is the same. And I, I wanted to highlight the fact that this is a recent, as you can tell <laughs> from the uh, banner, this is a very recent study. Uh, less than a month old. And it's basically saying that there is still inhumane and wasteful treatment of people at the border. And most of these people are gonna be from Central South America or Mexico. Uh, but when it has to do with the Ukraine crisis, there's a very interesting word that is inserted into the uh, report, or in this case, the story. There's a new type of migrant at the US-Mexico border now. And this is important because these new migrants at the Mexico border don't look like the old migrants at the Mexican border. They look more like us. And therefore, they're going to get a specific kind of treatment uh, in the United States as opposed to your typical uh, And this was happening in terms of also people being allowed to leave uh, Ukraine during uh, the 
invasion, they separated people that looked a certain way from people that you know had brown and black bodies, and they were put in lines and never made it to the bus or never never got on the train to escape their situation. Again, just to highlight the fact that Mexican undocumented labor has been encouraged in this country for almost a century now. We're introducing the new type of technology that speaks to Ipdesum's point about what is necropower or necropolitics, a politics of death. Migrants are dying at record numbers because they're being basically kettled into crossing uh, into the United States. And, so, and I've Personally, I visited these places, some of the most dangerous places in the desert, if not, you know, you could argue the world to survive in. They're being basically channeled into those locations if they're going to cross. And those places are weaponized in terms of climate. People die of heat exhaustion often in those places. And the Border Patrol don't respond to 911 calls for migrants because it's a lot more cost effective and you have less paperwork when you go and report a corpse as opposed to a rescue. So they tend to shy away from rescues but they have robot dogs now that are going to police those inhumane parts, those very uh, dangerous parts of the desert uh, in order not to have the actual border patrol agents risk their lives by going on on these ATVs and basically patrolling parts of the country that nobody visits uh, outside of migrants crossing to the desert or people that are looking for extreme uh, experiences. So Again, just to speak to your point, Ibtisam, it's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border. People don't want to talk about it. We have robot dogs now. This is very dystopian at this point. It's almost like Children of Men, the film. We have borders, we have camps, and now we've incorporated this technology that is robotic uh, as a way of policing, disciplining, and surveilling those bodies that we don't want to come into this country or that we haven't yet vetted as uh, acceptable in terms of the refugee asylum status. Anything you want to say to that? And, and that's why it's troublesome. Uh, th- th- this quality of mind uh, that draws a distinction between a, a wall and a, uh, a border. Uh, uh, there was this, um, uh, 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 th- there was this alarm and protests when Donald Trump was calling, I'm going to build a, a wall between the US and Mexico and I'm going to have Mexico pay for it. Uh, all that nonsense. And um, our um, uh, colleagues on, on campus were outraged by the by the statement. And it, it hit me like, really, do you really recognize a difference between the wall and a border? Uh, wouldn't you just see the border doing exactly what the wall does is just the wall hits you with, with its symbolism, but what the wall would do uh, is uh, to uh, uh, make your border more uh, uh, efficient. Uh, uh, so you want to maintain the border and abolish the wall. Um, what an idea. <laughs> no, that's a great, I, this is why I enjoy talking to you because I think I never even thought of it that way, but I think that's a great point. The way that I try to teach my students that essential thesis, that point you just made, is by showing pictures of people standing at the four corners in the United States where you can literally put your hands in, like, I think Colorado and in Utah and your legs. And so one person is essentially their body is inhabiting four states at the same time, which highlights the silliness of borders as a concept. But if you put a wall that separates states from each other, then then it makes that a lot less fun because then you can't go do that in places like that because then the wall reminds you that these are borders. As artificial as they are, they're just lines on the ground in this case in order for you to have fun with it. At the end of the day, they're meant to function as 
spaces that differentiate one location from another location and everything that means in some cases the right to have or not have an abortion for example or whether you will be criminalized for being undocumented versus being left alone for being undocumented uh so just to wrap up i think episode please correct me if i'm wrong one of the general points that we're trying to make here is that the geopolitical situation happening in places like ukraine is not very different from the geopolitical crisis a humanitarian crisis taking place and nations or locations like Yemen or Ethiopia or Central America or Mexico or hey, et cetera, that there's Palestine. There's a lot of places around the world that are experiencing similar, if not worse, types of humanitarian crisis. And yet because of first world developed nation and uh, capitalist political economic interests and the histories and the various uh, kind of if you will, branches that uh, capitalism has in terms of the things that it can impact, what is traditionally called the superstructure uh, aspect of capitalism as opposed to the economic base, that that is what we're witnessing right now in terms of the coverage of what constitutes a refugee that is deserving of sympathy and is deserving of some kind of aid and some kind of identification with, as opposed to those that are dehumanized in order to not be covered by media, in order to not get that kind of attention, and in many ways, the humanitarian assistance that they need because of their dehumanization. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, uh, those are important um, um, uh, ways of thinking uh, in barrels, thinking uh, about uh, uh, different events taking place in different places, recognizing their uh, rightful difference, uh, but thinking of how they relate to one another. And we've talked about, you know, um, uh, racial capitalism, and we've talked about, you know, the new face of the empire at the beginning of this uh, session. So all of that can help us, you know, theorize at that level. Uh, well, I don't, I think you're like me in the sense that you don't like to promote yourself uh, often in terms of like, so Eftusan, where can people find you? It's like, I don't want people to find me. Uh, <laughs> where can people email you? I don't want people to email me. But uh, anything that you would, uh, any final words or anything that you're working on that you would just want to say, hey, I'm, I got a project or book that I'm finishing or an article or anything that you just want to tell uh, people that will eventually listen and view this? Um, it's not that, it, that, that this is a project that I'm uh, working on. Uh, um, one of the things that I do every uh, semester is I, um, I begin with uh, generating a, a new set of questions and those questions will you know, constitute uh, um, not only the center of my scholarship, but the center of uh, also all of my uh, uh, lectures and conversations with, with, with the students. Um, uh, so um, uh, this is what I've been um, up to this, this semester is, is um, realizing that there is a lot of uh, scholarly um, uh, inattention to the uh, refugee. Um, and uh, there is a lot of uh, work on um, the exile because it's uh, 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 attractive for uh, people like yourself in, in the humanities. Uh, uh, but that refugee is um, 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 uh, somebody um, uh, uh, and, and a way of existence that was never sufficiently uh, theorized, perhaps for the reasons that uh, 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 Giathri Spivak uh, 
talks about can the subaltern speak? Can the refugee speak? Can can she theorize? Because obviously the exiled can speak for himself. Uh, Edward Said does, but my mother cannot, my grandmother cannot in that sense. So those are the questions that, I, that, that, that I'm being troubled by this particular semester, and they may constitute something that I will be working on um, in, um, uh, in, 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 in the summer. Another perhaps minor project, minor might be uh, uh, an understatement, is um, uh, this experience um, 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 teaching at a liberal arts college for the past 10 years of, of, of my life. Um, 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 it's a rich experience that has taught me a lot and has generated a lot of questions in my mind. I'm sure you're, you're going through the same exercise every day. Uh, but uh, maybe something about surviving the liberal arts um, uh, and, and how that uh, you know uh, uh, feels like. And that's a project that is you know, long-term and it's not necessarily for the summer. That is, that is extremely thought-provoking. It's got me thinking suddenly in a variety, so surviving the liberal arts and, and what that entails. So I think it's a very interesting uh, concept, both of them. I think you can establish a curriculum on the first thing you're studying and working on over the summer. And on the second one, I think that you could probably recruit a lot of faculty that have their own stories regarding what it means to survive the liberal arts college, especially when your liberal arts college identifies as specifically tied to a religious identity. I think it makes the uh, navigation process uh, very uh, unique uh, and harkens back to a lot of uh, older empire, empire models and what justified them in the first place. So uh, yeah, uh, best of luck with those projects up to some. I think this is what makes you an, an, an awesome scholar, an awesome teacher and an, uh, a great human being is that you're always committing your time and efforts towards investigating the problems that impact all of us and not just uh, things that you find intellectually stimulating. So again, thank you uh, for that. Thank you for being an excellent faculty uh, member and an excellent colleague and a great friend. I really appreciate you coming onto the show and giving us your valuable time and insights into a very complex geopolitical moment, I think, uh, in terms of world history and whatever is left of it. Uh, so thank you, Abdusam, for joining us. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure talking to you, Carlos. Same here. Thank you. Bye. And that will do it for today's episode of the Identity Paradox. Uh, again, please make sure to uh, check out the website, identityparadox.com, in order to get access to links uh, and show notes specifically for today's. All the links to the slides and the news stories that we discussed uh, will be made available there. So again, thank you. Uh, again, stay frosty, watch your shit. <laughs> Reboot, stay frosty, watch your six. Yes, the Lord. Oh, and don't forget to please subscribe to future episodes if you enjoyed today's.